So I want to welcome back Dr. Heather, who is a sleep psychologist and she also specializes in chronic pain management. In today's episode, we're going to be expanding a little bit more on melatonin and speaking um, some more about a really cool word called pain somnia. So we're going to switch gears a little bit right now and we're going to go into this awesome word pain somnia. Um, I think it's genius. So <laughs> Could you maybe just expand a little bit about what your experience is working with people who suffer from pain and lack of sleep? Certainly. So it's it's funny, this word popped up in social media, right? So it was from people who were experiencing both persistent or chronic pain and insomnia as well, and realizing for themselves in their lives the evidence of this, this connection between these two and how the vicious cycle that can people can fall into as their pain worsens, they're sleeping less, and as sleep worsens, their pain increases, right? Um, but we do know from research and when patients actually stop and do these kind of uh, experiences for themselves, little mini experiments I'm asking them to do, um, they often find that sure enough, pain is worse after sleep, but pain doesn't, after, after poor sleep, but so sleep is a stronger of these two as far as influence in that cycle, but that pain doesn't necessarily make it harder to fall asleep once they're able to reset circadian rhythms and get good quality sleep despite pain they have an even clearer understanding of that that it really is the insomnia that is triggering the the increase in pain rather than the pain really um, causing more of the insomnia unless it's kind of in the early stages acute pain but less so in chronic pain Okay, so um, I, and I think we talked about this in the last episode too. It, it's really important to understand that, that a lot of times it's actually the insomnia that's triggering the pain. Um, do you ever see the opposite though, where the majority of the time it's actually the pain triggering the insomnia? Well, it's kind of the chicken and the egg, right? So when I'm seeing with people, most people, by the time they get to a pain psychologist, they've had chronic pain, pain that's persisted for at least seven years. Uh, so in that case, we're trying to go back and check their memory and memory is impaired when you have chronic pain and when you have insomnia. So we're trying to go back and check seven years ago, which one kind of came first, right? And well, if they're, if their chronic pain developed from an injury accident, we know this is where it started. That's clearer. If pain was more diffuse and the onset more insidious, slow and un, uh, we can't pinpoint exactly when things kind of started, then it's becomes much more that chicken and egg thing, right? Harder to to determine. Um, but what, what I do see most often is that if we are able to manage sleep, if we are able to help people get good quality and sufficient quantity of sleep, that pain reduces. The physical experience of pain reduces and for some people quite significantly. I've had patients that within two sessions that they don't need to return. They'll send me the message, yeah, sleep is good. I don't have the pain issue any longer. We need to cancel future appointment. Let's do it. Wow. Um, so, that's great. So I always want to check in with an evaluation, always checking about sleep. Okay. And about people's pain. Is there anything that people can do right now to get started making changes, especially if they fall into this category of pain and lack of sleep? I think education is key. So we know that sleep education, more than sleep hygiene, we talked a little bit earlier today about sleep hygiene, and we actually know from research that sleep education is even more important than the sleep hygiene tips. For some people, practicing sleep hygiene tips is sufficient. If insomnia has not been a long-term, like a persistent um, issue that they've been dealing with, if they're deep in that cycle, though, they probably need the sleep education piece and really learn about different sleep um, stages and how we can improve our sleep in behavioral change ways and 
first, we don't want to change behaviors unless we know why. For most of us, we want what's the reason, right? And our motivation may not be sufficient for us to make behavioral changes. For other people, you tell me that I need to dim my lights before bed, I'll just do it. Um, and others really need the science behind it. They may be more skeptical and I, I can relate to that. I wanted to know what's the science behind it before I'm gonna make changes that are gonna impact my lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. So we wanna provide that education for folks first and then give them the, they'll have the understanding about why these different behavioral changes are recommended and they can choose which ones they'd like to start with, which ones might be the most, that give the most bang for their buck basically. Be efficient with their time and practices. Yeah, the education piece is really, really important. And I've seen that in my practice too with, with other clients that I have. All right, so we mentioned painsomnia and you mentioned some ways that people can start changing and you mentioned education. Now, one popular sleep aid on the market right now, and it's been on the market for a long time, but it's, it's, it's very popular, is melatonin and different blends um, that we use, sleep aids that we can, we can take before bed. Um, but although it could be one of the, the sleep aids that's most frequently used, could you tell us how effective it really is? As effective as placebo. So wow. um, placebo is the thing. It's really about the placebo benefit, right? The effect. So how much you believe that it's going to be effective for you is the likelihood that, or the amount really, then it will be effective for you. Um, so I don't, Really want to take that away from people and yet uh, large amounts of melatonin can be physically harmful for people so uh, you know i think it's a huge money maker um so it's promoted heavily uh, often even our medical providers will recommend it for people they'll prescribe it it's generally it's over the counter or recommend that people will get it over the counter um, but sometimes there's the you know the verbal prescription for it this is what you need to get. Here's how, how much you need to get milligram wise. Go get it from your local pharmacy or from your you know, grocery store or what have you, um, and then start taking it at bedtime. But as I was mentioning earlier, uh, melatonin is released by our pineal gland when the sun has set. So we don't actually just want to take it right before we're getting into bed. So I've had patients say, oh, I take it and it makes me wide awake. Well, I don't know how it works that way so much, but it can for some people, they're taking something, there may be an expectation I should be able to fall asleep right now. So they start thinking, why am I not falling asleep? And their brain gets rolling on with these worries. And now we're gonna make ourselves increasingly awake, alert, right? So that's not gonna tend to work well. Um, there's so many issues with melatonin, but it can feel good for someone to be able to say, you're wanting a pill to take this, right? So if someone's really believing in a biomedical model and they're saying, I need something, give me something to help me sleep. Well, it's a lot safer for, hopefully, um, for a provider to recommend melatonin over something like Ambien or some of the other sleep aids, right? Um, that we know some of the big risks that those have as well with you know restricting respiration or breathing and such. Um, but yeah, and melatonin can be beneficial for jet lag, but that's on the very occasional basis, right? So generally for sleep, I highly recommend people don't take melatonin. Our body's already making it naturally. So why give it something synthetic that then doesn't need to keep making it itself if we're substituting or um, supplementing with a synthetic? And it's a hormone. So if you're changing the balance of the hormones in your body by adding a hormone, I don't know. I tend to, I don't recommend melatonin unless it's for jet lag. Um, that is some wonderful advice that you just gave um, because 
you can become so tolerant to melatonin um, from what I understand of the research on melatonin. And um, I know that melatonin can also be an issue for women. So maybe you have some more insights on uh, the specifics of melatonin and what women should know about it too. I think the, the primary difference, if you're, you're looking at gender differences, is going to be the dosage. Mm -hmm. So dosage for women should be less than one milligram and if you're going to be taking it. And for men, it's less than five milligrams. And most often we find it in the grocery stores or hear about it from patients. I'm hearing that they're taking 10 milligrams or I'm taking 20 milligrams, two pills a night, right? I'm like, wow, okay. Um, so really your body's needing less than one milligram and ideally it's making it itself. Um, now you may be vitamin D deficient and that's something that blood work can be done to determine if you're vitamin D deficient. And if so, your doctor can prescribe, you know, a, um, vitamin D2 in prescription form or over-the-counter vitamin D3, something to get you up to a healthier range where your body's going to be able to, you know, convert it and make more of its own natural melatonin. But that would be a primary difference with, with women. I mean, it, it's still a hormone, but that's going to affect all genders. So Heather, we've come to the what I think is the fun part of a podcast, and these are rapid fire questions. Um, in this case, it's going to be just a rapid fire word. So I'm going to say one word, and I would love for you to just go on a rant a little bit about it um, as related to the topic that I'm going to shoot to you right now. So the first word is adenosine. So adenosine is one of the two things that regulates our circadian, our sleep-wake cycle, right? It's our circadian rhythms for one and then our sleep pressure for the other. And adenosine is about our sleep pressure. So it's a sleep pressure hormone. It is what increases our desire and readiness for sleep. So it's what causes us to feel sleepy. And adenosine is building throughout the course of our day. Every time that we are awake, every minute we're awake, adenosine is building in our system. So it's kind of like I'll often explain to patients that it's like this little balloon that we start off with early in the morning in our, in our body. And as we are going through every minute of the day, that, that balloon is building, it's getting more adenosine in it. If we take a nap during the day, particularly later in the day, we use some of that adenosine if our naps last longer than about 25 minutes or so. And as that happens, that balloon starts getting squishy. So later when we go to bed that night, we've had more awake time, the adenosine balloon keeps building. We go to bed that night and we don't have maybe sufficient adenosine to feel sufficiently sleepy and get into that deep sleep that we need. Um, and adenosine is muted by caffeine use and some other drugs that we may take. So the second word I have for you is caffeine. So caffeine is a big sleep disruptor. It's a psychoactive stimulant drug that actually stays in our system. It has a half-life of about mm, six to seven hours. So about 12 hours after we've consumed caffeine, so let's say I'm having caffeine in the morning around 10 a.m., I'm trying to go to bed at 10 p.m., I have somewhere around 20, 25% of that caffeine still active in my body. And as it is a sleep disruptor, it's going to reduce our deep sleep quality. So if we have caffeine in our system, that stage three slow brainwave deep sleep that we need for helping us deal with physical um, pain is going to be reduced. And it can be reduced by as much as 20%. Uh, so that's when we wake up feeling unrestored. We don't feel rested. And so we need to make sure that we are not having caffeine after the morning hours. All right. Well, the third uh, word I have for you is alcohol. Got it. So alcohol is a sedative. Um, but it's often used by people who have chronic pain in order to numb or reduce their experience of their pain sensations, um, sometimes to dull anxiety that may or may not be pain related and to be able to fall asleep. But the thing is that 
alcohol causes us to lose consciousness, not necessarily even being um, drunk or even tipsy, but alcohol use will actually cause interrupted sleep. So it is more light stage one, maybe stage two sleep. Uh, so we're having repeated waking. And often people aren't aware of this. They'll say, no, if I drink alcohol, I'm asleep through the night. But the actual stages of our sleep are changing and so we are going to have more disrupted sleep even if you're not consciously aware of it and so this poor quality quality sleep uh, it blocks REM which is critical for our emotional health right for that mood regulation piece so even a single glass of wine at dinner time has been found to reduce REM sleep um, it also caffeine or sorry alcohol is going to impact our ability to have this human growth hormone that we need as well so it's going to impact our deep sleep also. All right, um, so the next topic I have for you is smoking. Maybe you can tell us about that too. Uh, so tobacco, nicotine causes inflammation and that plays a significant role in persistent pain. Smokers are actually three times more, more likely to be in pain than people who are non-smokers. And smoking reduces deep sleep and it can shorten our actual sleep time overall because people start having withdrawal and nicotine withdrawal. So they actually have more uh, early morning waking. So um, we'd also like to know a little bit about uh, food. So having a late meal before you go to bed. So there's a lot of um, variability in like different types of food and how they impact different people, but uh, we don't want to have indigestion. And when our body is going into sleep, digestion slows. So if you have eaten food within the last three or four hours before going to sleep, it can disrupt our sleep. So it can impair the quality of our sleep. So the last thing we want to ask you right here is about marijuana. Marijuana is a pretty mixed bag when it comes to persistent pain. Um, marijuana is going to break down just very generally into CBD, which is a non-psychoactive component of it, and then THC. And of course, there are you know 200 plus um, other components that we know about with this. So I'm taking a, a general approach here. But THC appears to speed up the time that it takes for us to fall asleep so we can fall asleep more readily but it's not actually good quality sleep because it can block REM during the middle of the night um, but we'll have more REM later on but so people may say oh I'm having more bizarre dreams right when I'm first waking up in the morning I'm having these really bizarre dreams it's because the REM has been blocked earlier on in the sleep cycle and so our brain is trying to make up for it at the end and gives us more of these this REM at the end but it's not as good quality and actually when we were to, or if we were to discontinue, let's say we're taking like, people take gummies. I hear often people say, oh, I'm taking this one-on-one -on -one ratio of CBD, THC gummies. And, um, and then they may not take it some nights, right? And so we can have withdrawal when that THC is not available anymore. And so that can actually be a problem. Um, we also have dosing issues, right? And there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on this, but we know that with lower doses, actually around the five milligram mark, which is what a lot of like those little gummies are at for THC, it can actually cause wakefulness um, and higher levels can cause sleepiness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's improving the quality of our sleep. It's generally not. So there's that. Also, CBD is an, CBD is an anxiolytic, an anti-anxiety um, provider. So it calms the amygdala, the control fear center of our brain, right? control center of our brain and it appears that that may actually improve sleep pressure so there there may be some potential benefit to the CBD piece um, much more so than the THC when it comes to sleep so from what I other what I understand Heather of um, all the things that I threw out at you right now with the rapid-fire questions is that things that inhibit adenosine production are things like caffeine alcohol 
smoking because of inflammation and having late meals, so food, and then you mentioned the THC component of marijuana might not be very beneficial in the long run. So actually, I do have one last question for you, Heather. I've heard a little bit about opioid use and how it might affect uh, sleep quality. Maybe you can expand on that for us. Right, so, so actually long-term opioid use is gonna reduce the sleep quality and it worsens our sleep disordered breathing, which can then in turn worsen our pain. So something that we're taking to reduce our pain can actually become something that worsens our pain and impairs by impairing our sleep quality. So uh, opioids also stimulate the arousal nuclei of our brain, which is uh, has a similar effect to caffeine, basically. Okay, thanks Heather so much for clarifying that for us. We were mentioning sleep aids on the market and we know that there's many products on the market also, um, and it's not often possible for a person to reach out to their practitioner. Sometimes it's difficult. So what criteria would you suggest when a person is evaluating a type of sleep aid, um, especially if they're looking for something, and maybe it's not melatonin, it could be anything really. Got it. So I don't recommend any sleep aids, actually. Um, anything that someone would be taking orally, any prescriptions, I don't I recommend against all of those. Uh, I would, in my current environment, I will have patients talk with a pain pharmacist who will talk with them about um, sleep aids, but they too will talk about the disruption that so many different medications will cause to the different stages of sleep. So really people need to be aware of what the different stages of sleep are and how these different supplements or prescriptions will then negatively impact some of the sleep stages. There's a, a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, and he had a section in there, um, I think it was titled, like, the bad, the bad, and the ugly, or the something along those lines, that it's just, there's not good, <laughs> there aren't good um, sleep aid options, other than what we can do behaviorally, right? So these, I mean, now I'm not talking about CPAP and BiPAP and things, um, devices that people may need when they have sleep apnea or mouth guards or any of that stuff. I'm talking about medications, whether it's over the counter or prescription. And so I don't re recommend any of these. If we're taking something um, even twice a week, then our body's gonna start expecting it, right? So I have patients who are taking something on a regular basis and it can still be throwing off our circadian rhythms. It can still cause worsening insomnia it can cause memory impairment and some of them restrict our breathing in such an extent that particularly if compounded by other medications you may be taking particularly for pain right if anyone's on opioids you're already having some respiratory um, restriction then that can lead to death so we don't want any kind of barbiturate sleep aid being combined with those medications wow so i don't um, recommend any <laughs> so. wow that's um Okay, that's what people need to understand and they need to listen to. Um, so, wow, definitely. Now, um, since you mentioned that, you know, people shouldn't really be taking uh, any of those sleep aids that are on the market, um, and it's not possible for people to reach out to their practitioner, um, do you have any other advice of how people can, yeah? yeah. Yeah, I was realizing I'm just taking away all hope. You can't have any, any <laughs> no, no medicine for you. Um, right. So <laughs> I, the empirically validated treatment is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it can be challenging to find providers who provide this particular specialized treatment, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. 
but there is an app that is free that was created by the Veterans Association, uh, the VA in the U.S., and you can access it for free in, throughout the U.S., and it's called CBTI Coach. So it stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia Coach. So CBTI Coach. And within this app, people can take the Insomnia Severity Index for free. So they can look to see how severe their insomnia is currently. And I recommend people take that the first time they get in that app. And then after that, that I would recommend that they track their sleep every morning. Within 30 minutes of waking up, there is a timer within this app that you can set for yourself. So it will alert you to, hey, go answer these like eight questions. So people will wake up in the morning and we'll start forgetting how our sleep was throughout the night, right? Our brain starts changing things up as we're going through the course of our day. So checking it and filling out these eight questions, it'll probably take you about three to five minutes the first time you do it. After that, it's going to be a one to two minute thing each morning to fill this out. But the great thing about tracking your sleep is after you've had about 10 to 14 days in a row of tracking it this way, the app will start evaluating and doing the math really to determine what your sleep efficiency score is. Mm -hmm. um, it will give a prescription recommendation, so not of a medication, but of a sleep prescription for yourself. What is the recommended bedtime and what is the recommended wake time based on the input that you have put in so it's customized to you. And then I recommend that patients would then do the insomnia severity index for themselves. Just check that on a monthly basis or bi-monthly basis to see their progress. So if I'm working with someone directly, like in a private practice where I can see them on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, I expect that they're going to see between, you know, the week one and week four, they're seeing a reduction in that insomnia severity index. So we know we're making some progress. And by month two, I'm expecting a pretty significant reduction in that insomnia severity index for them. But also within this app, it does have a lot of um, education and it's put in there in very brief bits. It's like, here's one sentence explaining what sleep efficiency is or and how it doesn't tell you how to calculate it, but it will do the calculations for you. Um, and it will tell you about sleep drive and so many other things. Um, so it's in very, very brief ways. I think it makes it really accessible to people. You can just log into the app for a minute and just get a little piece of information and then kind of see how that applies for yourself. Uh, but the tracking piece is something that people can then really bring to their provider, right? Your medical provider or your, if you're working with a psychologist or someone else who is providing cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, you can provide that information to them rather than need to do paper tracking any longer and then all the calculations that need to happen. So um, yeah, it can be a, a wonderful aid that people can use. Well, that's a very good recommended aid. And it sounds like um, it talks about a lot of what you mentioned earlier, um, the educational piece also, and having some hard data of, of what your sleep is looking like. Um, and it doesn't seem to be intrusive or messing up your melatonin and cortisol rhythms. No, right. We don't want you doing it at bedtime. We want you to just kind of <laughs> go to sleep. But you, so the first time you do it, you may be looking at it in the afternoon or the evening when you're listening to this, this podcast, then I would go ahead and check it out, look through all those eight questions for yourself, and then the next morning be able to go in and answer them. So you know what you're, what you're looking for that night. Right. Well, just to wrap up here, my last question for you before we leave and for our listeners is more about um, a piece of advice that you might give us, especially if we are spouses or caregivers or family members that are um, helping people who are suffering with pain insomnia in our families. Maybe you could give us some of your, um, some of your advice. 
Got it. So I think assertive communication is key, right? It's the way of respectfully communicating what our needs are and it includes active listening as well. So being able to say what it is that you need and find out what the other person needs and then as you're finding out what they need, how can I help you, right? So I really encourage people when they're coming in to meet with me and they're going to be working for, uh, like they have chronic pain, all the people I see have chronic pain, almost everybody actually, and uh, they, many of them have insomnia, and if they have a significant other, it doesn't have to be a, a spouse or a partner, it could be a close friend or a, um, a family member or a caregiver potentially, and I think providing them with that education as well about sleep education is what I'm referring to, then they can be someone who supports that person in making some of those behavioral changes in their lives. Um, that's, I think, really as a motivator, but also as, a, as an educator at times. If people feel like they've forgotten that thing because they're so focused on the pain or the pain is so pervasive that they're having difficulty remembering the things that they learned, uh, often having that partner being able to say, hey, remember we're going to do this breathing or we're going to do the body scan or we're going to do whatever different things have been taught to them to help them get back to sleep or get to sleep initially or even set themselves up for good quality sleep that night. Well, it seems like it's it's a handy tool just for the extended family and friends to learn about sleep too. So I think everyone wins in in this case with with this type of well, like the application you mentioned, and um, and just having support. Generally speaking, it seems to be an all around win for everybody. So I just wanted to summarize a little bit some of the key takeaways that we spoke about today just before we go. Now we expanded on pain somnia and we talked about people who have pain and lack of sleep and how a lot of times it's usually um, not necessarily the pain that is affecting the insomnia but vice versa but you in your clinical practice see both things happening and we also talked about melatonin and how efficacious it is, it, it is and you said just as efficacious as placebo, and that that's that's gold right there. <laughs> so, so that was great. And then you also mentioned that, um, yeah, when you're evaluating sleep aids, don't go and look for other sleep aids. <laughs> um, you gave us a very good example of the CBTI app that can be used, which I will leave notes about all of the links in the podcast that we talked about today and in the previous podcast. And you also um, mentioned how education is key, just generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to add just before we go? Well, I just feel like some of this, I'm probably taking away people's hope when I'm saying no again about all the medications, but there is so much that can be done in a short period of time by just learning about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, just by learning about sleep education even. Um, so a lot of the information in, just in that free app will provide you with some tools to be able to make some minor changes for yourself that might lead to very big results. So it really is about resetting those circadian rhythms, watching out for the light sources at night, making sure you have that wind down bedtime routine and waking up at the same time every day. All right, well, Dr. Heather, just before we go, do you think that you could tell us where we can find you on social media or how we can contact you for listeners who might want to work with you? Got it. I am really not on social media other than LinkedIn. So it would be under my name on social media. Um, I have just started a new website that is still under construction. Um, so you can check it out. It does have resources on there, but it's just painandsleepsolutions.com. 
perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Heather, for being with us. And hopefully we'll invite you back next time to talk about other pain-related issues and um, pain somnia for me. That was like the coolest word ever. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. It was fun. Awesome.